Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today, I am really honored to have this guest. Uh, I have watched her uh, on social media. That's where I first caught her. And now she's, you know, on demand on on, uh, news networks and so forth. And her name is Dr. Jane Morgan. And we're going to talk to Dr. Morgan about some current health situations as well as just the overall state of health in the Black community, uh, what her take is being a frontline person. So as always, uh, I anticipate a great show. And... um, we're going to do like we always do and, and start with the introduction. Uh, Dr. Jane Morgan is a cardiologist and the executive director of the COVID task force at the Piedmont Healthcare Corporation in Atlanta, Georgia, the largest healthcare system in Georgia. Within this role, she serves as the system COVID vaccine expert. Additionally, she serves as a CNN medical expert contributor and is the owner and creator of the Stairwell Chronicles social media series directed towards addressing questions surrounding COVID vaccines and other medical topics in a conversational format. Further, Dr. Morgan has been named to the committee of the Department of Health in its series, Ask the Experts. Previously, Dr. Morgan was the System Director of Research and Innovation and the Director of Cardiovascular Research, where she oversaw all clinical trials and set the strategic growth the Piedmont Research Institute. Dr. Morgan has served as the Chief Medical Officer for the American Chemistry Council, CEO of 40 Million Beats LLC, with clients such as Novartis, Abbott, and Moderna, the cardiology advisor to the Mitraclip team at Abbott Labs, the worldwide director of the Cardiorenal Drug Development Program at Solvay Pharmaceuticals, and is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. Currently, she is the Adjunct Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Morehouse School of Medicine, board member of the National Diversity Inclusion Team at the American Heart Association, and the current Health Equity Advisor for Moderna. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to present to you Dr. Jane Morgan. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jane Morgan, MD. How are you doing, Doc? I'm well. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited. I am so honored to have you on the show. So I caught you. You caught my attention with those Stairwell Chronicles. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, um, I'm on LinkedIn more than anything else. And so okay. I started seeing those. And uh, outside of Dr. Fauci, you were pretty much the person that I was relying on for information uh, that was credible. And so um, first question I want to ask you is what made you decide to do those stairwell chronicles? What inspired you to do that? You know, early on um, in the pandemic, and when I say early, I mean, you know, right when it was starting, even February, March. 
when, when it was pretty clear to the medical community that something was coming down the pipe. We weren't exactly sure what it was, but we were hearing a lot of rumbling um, late January, early February. And I recognized that um, certainly the African-American population um, you know, would, would need someone to actually be able to have a trusted voice and to be a trusted voice. And um, one of the concerns that I had was that the, the, the previous administration um, had been uh, really openly hostile uh, to African-Americans. The vaccines were being developed um, under that uh, administration, under Operation Warp Speed. And I anticipated that there was going to be a lot of reluctance, suspicion, reticence, and certainly when we take into account all of the historical atrocities that have been done against um, our minds and our bodies in the name of the advancement of science and medicine here in this country. And so I really started by doing a very detailed, very um, complete one hour seminar. I prepared all of my topics, I worked on it, um, I went to Birmingham, Alabama to film where someone was going to allow me some time in the studio and did this big one hour webinar giving you every piece of information that you needed um, and nobody watched it, right? And it was really well done. <laughs> I had a lot of information. And so I decided, okay, maybe I should try 30 minutes um, and split it up into 30 minute blocks. Still didn't get a lot of traction. And literally, I was just at home sitting on my steps, just for no particular reason. I was just sitting on my steps, kind of just thinking about it. And I said, you know, what if I just say something in 60 seconds? Um, and at the time, because I was not that creative and I don't have a marketing background, I really couldn't think of what do I call it. And I literally said, well, what about Stairwell Chronicles? I'm just sitting on the steps. And when I say I said that, I said it to myself. I wasn't talking to anybody. There's nobody around. Um, and I literally just came up with that a little bit as a placeholder until I could think of a name that was catchy or that people would relate to. Um, and I never found anything else. So I started producing these 60 second videos, answering questions about COVID, answering questions about COVID vaccine. People tended to like them, small digestible bites of information, not the big high level one hour webinar where I started, <laughs> right? I just was doing little 60 second vignettes um, and I started to do those um, and I never really got back to thinking about what I should name it. I continued sitting on the stairs to do it and it just became the Stairwell Chronicles. People tended to like it. They understood I would be sitting on the stairs. It literally was named for what it was, right? Chronicles happening on the stairs. Um, and that's where we are. And I probably have done, oh my gosh, I don't know, 150 or so at this point. Um, and so, you know, that's the explanation, nothing high level, nothing planned, very organic uh, trial and error, right, which is the, the true uh, lifeline of research, trial and error, trial and error, um, until you find something that actually, you know, can give you the outcomes that you need. Well, as organic as it is, it's, it's been very powerful and very helpful. So I, I appreciate you for doing that. Um, now I'm going to pick on your brain a little bit, um, sure. and, and start 
So now the new thing is monkeypox, right? Mm-hmm. So all mm-hmm. I know about monkeypox is that it's it's a, a much more terrible version than chickenpox, although it's somewhat mm-hmm. related. Kind of right. kind of explain quickly what monkeypox is, why it seems to be spreading, and and uh, who should be concerned about it, and and where where we're at now as far as um, CDC and other folks dealing sure. with. Sure, sure. So monkeypox is in the family of viruses called the orthopox virus family, orthopox, and other viruses in that family are smallpox and cowpox. Chicken pox, interestingly, even though it's called pox, is not in the orthopox family. It's in the herpes virus family. So it's actually unrelated to monkeypox, but you're absolutely right. The way that it's spread and the way that we catch it is very, very similar. And that is by that skin-to-skin contact, coming in physical contact with somebody who has the lesion. They are contagious at that time. Right now, we are seeing it in the community, the LGBTQT community of men having sex with men and bisexual men, but this is not where it will stay. Anyone can catch the, this, this disease because it is not a sexually transmitted disease. It is sexually transmissible. Sex is just one of the ways in which you can transmit it. But coming in contact with someone with these lesions and also respiratory droplets from your mouth can also uh, give you, uh, put you at risk of, uh, of getting monkeypox. The other thing to remember is that monkeypox does survive for periods of time outside of the body. So if you know of someone who has monkeypox, don't share their bed linen, don't share towels, don't mix your laundry in. That person needs to be isolated and not just them, that means all of their personal possessions as well for that three to four week period. Right, because I was reading somewhere the incubation period could be as much as 21 days before right. anybody shows any symptoms of that. That's right. Before And the symptoms meaning the lesions. Now, you can have symptoms, you know, kind of similar to virus, similar to the flu, similar to COVID, right? These are all viruses. So you can have fever. You can have malaise, meaning fatigue. You can have swollen lymph nodes. You can have a, a cough. Um so all of those kinds of things, back aches, body aches, we see that as well. That's very nonspecific. You know, a lot of times we get that with a number of viruses. So this is a virus. It's still a virus. And so you can have all of these symptoms that can be confused with any other symptom of any other virus, including allergies. So, um, and so you're right. People can be contagious for a period of time if the lesions haven't presented themselves or if the lesions have presented themselves, but in areas of the body where maybe they haven't noticed them. Sometimes in the genital area, you may not notice it. These lesions though, generally can either be very painful or also very itchy. And so you will be very uncomfortable after a period of time, but early on, you could have an asymptomatic period. And is there any, how how is it treated? Is it just like chickenpox where it's really no vaccine for that or so we do have vaccines but in very limited supply and the vaccines really are to prevent the disease we do have some antiviral medications we call it t-pox um, that is used to treat monkeypox again in very very limited supply our 
um, archive of these vaccines, unfortunately, is quite low. And I think we had a much larger stockpile many years ago, but over the years, that stockpile has been allowed to dwindle as monkeypox hasn't seemed to be a threat. And we mostly kept it on hand for uh, the military for any type of uh, viral warfare, um, and also for people in laboratories who are directly going to be handling this monkeypox virus. Um, and so it is going to take a while to ramp up this supply, right? Demand right now is outstripping supply. We were unprepared for a monkeypox outbreak, the same as in Europe. And what is um, interesting, maybe, and, and somewhat curious and maybe even alarming about this particular monkeypox outbreak is that it is proliferating and spreading in areas of the world where we previously have not seen it like the United States and like Europe. These are areas where we're seeing the highest case count that's incredibly, not only unusual and rare, hasn't happened before uh, that we can recall during modern times when we've been um, documenting science. So, and, and so the virus is moving in a different way um, and spreading and human behavior like COVID will contribute to how this virus spreads and how successful it's able to be. So, and just real quickly, so what countries had it been, uh, had had it proliferated in? I, I, I'm right. kind of awkward to right. how to say it, but what countries sure. had it been more prevalent in prior so to it? Generally, yeah, generally we saw it in Central Africa and West Africa, not large amounts, but when you see um, monkeypox, generally it's in Africa. We have not seen it um, really to any degree outside of the African continent. And yet we see the highest numbers now outside of Africa and what has changed and what is making this um, proliferate in areas outside of uh, sort of uh, its origins. Um, and that is a, an answer that we don't have the answer to um, right now. And so one thing we absolutely don't want are twin pandemics, no matter how complacent people are behaving, we still are in this COVID pandemic. If you look at the US uh, map of the CDC, almost every single state is shaded red. We have high, high levels of COVID. And I dare say there's almost no one uh, that I know of who doesn't know someone right now who either has COVID or just got over COVID. And so this is proliferating at the same time that we've got this monkeypox virus. So now we've got dual, dueling, not dueling with, the, with each other, but um, dueling here in the United States on our soil, two different uh, viruses. We certainly don't want two pandemics happening at the same time. Because the vaccine is in short supply, we want everybody to follow really good public health measures the same as with COVID to keep yourself safe. Wear a mask, protect yourself from the respiratory droplets of people's mouths. Practice social distancing. If you are, if you are distanced from someone, you can't come in skin to skin contact, right? You won't be touching them. And make certain that you wash your hands frequently, keep them clean and sterile because our hands are a primary uh, means of touching and transmitting all types of things, including fomites, bacteria, and viruses. So exactly what we're doing with COVID, we really need to implement that with monkeypox as well to try to mitigate it and keep it under control. 
So, and I was, and you led into what I was going to get into next of where we are with COVID, but I, I got one more question about monkeypox. Is it similar enough where if somebody doesn't get monkeypox, like chickenpox, right? If you, if you, or if you've had, I think if you've had chickenpox in the past, you have to be vaccinated when you get like in your fifties or whatever for shingles. Will that have to be the same thing for people now exposed to monkeypox that they will have yeah, to? It does. Right. So you're asking if monkeypox confers immunity. Once you have it, you have lifelong immunity. So here's how I'm going to answer, answer that. And I'm hedging a little bit and I want to be transparent and say that I'm hedging because these viruses do what viruses do. They change and they replicate. So here's what I'm going to say to that. This is only one version of monkeypox that we see here in the United States. It happens to be the version that is not that lethal, meaning you're unlikely to die from it. There is another version of monkeypox where the mortality rate or the death rate can be 10% or so. And so whether or not one version of monkeypox protects you from another version, that's the real question. Um, and I don't have the answer to that. Okay. So getting back to the COVID thing. So I'm, you know, we didn't ran out of Greek letters, I guess. So now we're using terms like BAC and all this other stuff. Where are we? You, you already kind of gave us the rules of what, how we should still be engaging, but what, where are we now with the virus? What is what is this strain that's out there now? And is it as deadly as the other strains have been? Um, and so the strain that is currently dominating the United States is the BA5 strain. It is an offshoot of Omicron. This, so this is still Omicron, one of the uh, sub-variants. Uh, there have been several sub-variants, five of significance. So uh, the BA1, BA2, BA4, uh, BA5, and we have this, uh, we have the BA212. Um, currently, we also have something called the BA275. We're keeping a close eye on that as well. Doesn't seem to so far be outcompeting the BA5. One thing that we are concerned with with BA5, which is what the general population is unconcerned with, the very thing that the general population is unconcerned with, scientists are the most concerned with, and that is that it generally doesn't confer severe disease. It doesn't cause you to be very sick. That means that the public, by and large, has been unconcerned with it and feels as if, uh, you know, let's just return to our normal life. This particular variant isn't going to make you very sick. That's the number one thing that is concerning scientists because if you allow your guard down and allow this virus to infect you because you are unconcerned since you have a low likelihood of getting sick or a low likelihood of dying, it increases the opportunity for this virus to be successful. Every time it invades your body, it learns, it replicates, and then it mutates. And we have the ability to get even more and more and more variants. And at some point, because of our behavior today, we could face a variant in the future that is not as kind as this one is. The other thing that we uh, that is of concern to scientists with this variant is that it has developed the ability to reinfect people who previously were infected, and that used to give some degree of immunity. We see that that's completely eradicated now with this BA5 variant, 
and also that it evades vaccines. So people who are vaccinated and people who are boosted can still be infected, although they will still have much, much milder disease. So this particular variant has learned to work around it. And then the last thing that I will say is because a virus doesn't kill you, doesn't mean that it's not concerning. In fact, this BA5 variant is so smart that it has learned to be very mild, which allows it to be very successful. If it doesn't kill its host, it gets to live and spread and go to the next person. If its host dies, it dies with it. So just the fact that it causes mild disease means that it continues to live and infect more and more and more people and have the ability to continue to change. So it's incredibly successful. And so we don't know what's going to come, including the option of all of these variants could just burn themselves out and the pandemic could end. Just because you mutate doesn't mean it gets worse. It can also get weaker and it can get milder. And maybe the pandemic burns itself out. But unfortunately, the virus isn't telling us in which way it's mutating. So we just don't know. And so it is a crapshoot. We're playing with, um, uh, you know, Russian roulette. We don't know. And so we have to be cognizant, like anything in life, right? Our decisions today can impact us tomorrow. Right. And so, and, and, and just real quick, the, the president seems to have had a couple of bouts with COVID over the last month. So is this part of that, that BA5 variant that you're talking about where he's been vaccinated, he's taken, and I can't remember the name of the drug right offhand, but he's taken this drug and there seems to be some kind of phenomenon where people have taken the drug they still can catch COVID like right away. So is that where the president is now? He's, he's hit this mild strain that just keeps coming back. That, you know, that is absolutely right. And what a great way to put it. And, and I understand that he now is testing negative, but the drug that you're talking about is called uh, Paxlovid, Paxlovid, P-A-X-L-O-V-I-D. It is a drug out of Pfizer, an antiviral protease inhibitor. And it, it, um, interferes with the replication of the virus. So the virus is unable to make copies of itself and so it dies out. So that, that, that uh, process of the more it replicates, the more viral particles are in your body and the sicker you are. So this drug interrupts that replication process. You take it for five days, it's three or four pills a day for five days um, after you have symptoms and test positive. What we have seen is that people can sometimes have rebounds. In the trials, one or 2% had rebound, meaning that after the five-day course of drug was completed, one or 2% of the people began, after initially testing negative, to test positive again or to have a recurrence of their symptoms. But we seem to be seeing this more often when it's now being applied to real-world patients as opposed to clinical trial. We call this real-world data. And why is that? For one, the clinical trials were done prior to the Omicron variant. So by the time those trials were open and closed, we didn't have the Omicron variant. So Paxlovid wasn't trialed against Omicron. Number two, all of the people in the trial were unvaccinated. And so in real world, what do we have? 
in the real world, we have it being uh, prescribed to people who are fully vaccinated and during an Omicron surge. And so it's unclear whether we can extrapolate that data uh, point by point, and, but it does seem pretty clear anecdotally, I haven't seen data that the rebound rate is higher than the one to 2% that we saw in clinical trials against previous variants in unvaccinated people. And so again, we, we see that the virus learns, it changes, and we're constantly playing catch up. If we can't get a handle on it and follow good public health measures and get this virus level down very low, viruses will do what they do. They continue to adapt, continue to change. Survival in science always goes to the fittest. In science, the fittest is not the strongest. The fittest is the species that is the most adaptable. That is the species that survives. All right. So it sounds like we're going to be dealing with COVID for a long time. Um, um, but well, I hope not. I hope people will listen and follow uh, science yeah. and, and start following public health measures, and we'll just all, you know, get this under control. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm not here to burst bubbles and stuff, so I want you to keep yeah. keep keep optimistic. <laughs> But in the time we have remaining, I, I wanted to get your perspective as an African-American, as somebody that's on the front line dealing with healthcare, not just COVID, but healthcare in general. Um, explain, well, in one sense, explain the, the disparity that you see uh, as healthcare is provided to Americans, especially with African-Americans, and then to consolidate time, do you see a public policy out to, to fix those disparities? So kind of spell out what you see as disparities and is there a way politically to, to fix it? Right, so we certainly don't have enough time here, but absolutely there's <laughs> disparities in, in, in healthcare. And I give talks on, on health equity and, and where can we even begin because there's so many layers um, of this onion. And so um, there are, you know, a, implicit bias within the healthcare system. And we have to remember that um, doctors, like other people in professions, come from somewhere. And so racists also become doctors, but also people who are not racist but are indoctrinated like all of us see with all the media of negative images and negative stereotypes and images that we see in, in uh, books when we are studying, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it can cause you to draw false conclusions in a negative way to triage people to a lower level of care and standard. Additionally, because of um, where you might have financial constraints, you might not have access to the absolute best medications, which can be very expensive. These medications can be life-saving. And, and why is that? That is because of the social construct of race within our society, where you start out really with one hand behind your tie behind your back. And then for the rest of your life, you are trying to catch up. Why is that important? It is important because even independent of the amount of education that you receive, you still never reach the parity as a, as a black professional, as white professionals. Why is that important? 
That's because you don't have promotional opportunities. When you get to a certain level, you really don't see a lot of minorities, certainly not black women at the top, regardless of how um, qualified they may be. One, there's not mentoring, there's not grooming, they're not in succession plans. Is that important? The reason that promotions are important is not only because it provides leadership and influence and a voice at the table, it is because it provides more economic viability. And that gives you freedom to make better choices about where you live, the healthier, the foods that you can choose, the types of insurance um, that you can have. All of those things contribute to your overall health. And so it is important to have promotions and to move up the ladder such that you have access to those things as well, not to mention the opportunity to build generational wealth so that we don't continue this cycle again and again and again. Unfortunately, what we see in the United States is independent of your education, independent of your career level, independent um, of the amount of years that you have uh, put in, your opportunities are still not the same. And it is important to earn income because it helps you make decisions that can be impactful to your health and also allow you to build generational wealth for your family such that we can break this cycle. Uh, so basically you're saying being broke is, is bad for your health. I get that. It is. <laughs> so do you, do you see any- Being broke and not having any opportunities to get beyond that, no matter how much you prepare um, as far as education. Now, certainly, you know, you can have more and more education and get further and further and further ahead. But when we compare Blacks to whites, you see that there's still a huge gap. All right. So in two minutes, name a public policy thing that you think could happen. What should an elected official do to help break this cycle? And so what, you know, probably one of the first things that we could do is to really begin to think about clinical trials and make certain that we can begin to socialize what it really means to be involved in clinical trials, not the Henrietta Lacks, not the Tuskegee experiment, which is the last thing we actually all heard about clinical trials. And yet, this is where uh, drug discovery is occurring. This is where people have access to tomorrow's therapy today. When we looked at Donald Trump, when he was sitting in the White House and he got COVID, they flew him to Walter Reed Hospital and immediately gave him something that no one had ever heard of called monoclonal antibody therapy. The reason you hadn't heard of it is that it was not FDA approved. It's only available within clinical trials. He was approved to receive that under emergency use authorization. The only other people who had access to that drug were people who were enrolled in those clinical trials. We have to begin to raise our hands, especially if you have chronic medical conditions, as many of us do, diabetes, heart disease, heart failure, obesity, high cholesterol. Get involved in clinical trial. If you are unable to afford your medication, you're either uninsured or underinsured, clinical trials may be your segue to better health. The drug companies by and large will support you and all of your medications during the time that you are enrolled in this trial and you have many doctors and nurses overseeing your care. Additionally, 
depending on which group you're in, sometimes it's placebo, meaning it's, a, it's no medicine or um, active medicine, you actually could get much better, which is exactly what we saw happen with Donald Trump. And the last thing that I will say is with cancer trials in particular, the trials themselves, not the drug that's approved subsequently, but being enrolled in the trial with that investigational compound has been shown to increase the rate of remission of cancers. So that would be the number one thing, I think, if we needed to focus the start with clinical trials. Well, Dr. Morgan, the time went by real fast. Uh, I yeah. appreciate it. And I'm going to have to get you back. So because uh, I know you do this kind of work dealing with equity and kind of probing it out a little bit. Um, but I do appreciate you taking the time out to, to educate the listeners and, uh, so and, and and be safe out there. Yep, you too. I appreciate it. Thank Bye, you. everybody. Oh, one more thing. Follow me on Instagram, on Twitter at Dr. J Morgan, J-A-Y-N-E Morgan. All right, and so we're back. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that she got that in. Um, Dr. Morgan um, is really, really a a uh, a blessing for a lot of people, especially those of us in the African-American community, uh, trying to get the knowledge out there. And like she told you, um, she wanted to do it in a in a big formal way and realized that the best way is just to give us bits at a time. Um, but she has been very thorough in those little brief uh, uh, moments, uh, conveying and keeping people up to date with what's what's been going on. Um, so I, I thank her for that. Um, and I, like I said, I'm glad she got the plug in. Make sure that you check her out on most of these social media formats. I don't know if she's on TikTok or she probably is on TikTok um, and Snapchat, but I know she's on Instagram and and LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. So make sure that you 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 keep up with Dr. Morgan and we're going to get her back um, uh, to try to get into more of how, you know, uh, we as black folks can continue to take better care of ourselves and so on. And uh, that's an interesting point she brought up about the clinical trials, um, you know, to have more of a say-so in uh, the drugs that that you see on commercials. Um, because, you know, you see these commercials and then, of course, and I think it's by law, because it used to be a time where you couldn't even have prescriptions on TV, right? You couldn't, you well, prescription. You couldn't have drug advertisement on television, and basically, if it wasn't for drug advertisement, which is kind of the catch twenty two, the drug advertisement is keeping television that we like on the air, uh, like the main networks, um, the revenue that they 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 provide to those networks for advertising. But the flip side is, you know, you got people coming to the doctor saying, I want this drug, <laughs> you know, 
I think this drug instead of really kind of letting the doctor give you the options, but that's a whole nother conversation another day. And it's not just endemic to black people. It's just overall, um, that's just one of those public policy things I, I kind of dealt with. Um, but anyway, like I said, make sure you check her out, uh, on those, on those things. She, she's, she's very pleasant and she's, she's very informative. Um, but I wanted to kind of get away. Well, in some way it's kind of connected to the conversation because the legislation that just passed that everybody's talking about this inflation reduction act, right. Which is really kind of a watered down version or a watered down 2.0 version of the build back better legislation that Biden wanted. Biden wanted this massive sweeping legislation, right? During COVID, it was Rooseveltian in, in his idea. And so he got the first part taken care of with the infrastructure package uh, that certain people were voting against, but then turn around in their congressional lo- newsletters and touting how much money is going to go in that, their particular district, right? And taking credit for it, even if they voted against it. It's politics. Um, so you're going to see the same thing with this inflation reduction act. So basically, um, for those of you who are trying to figure out well, what exactly is this thing and, you know, cause I know people are not junkies like me, um, as far as politics, which is again, why I do this to try to give people information Um, the summary is that the inflation reduction act is supposed to enact his, his historic deficit reduction to fight inflation. When they're talking about that, they're talking about $300 billion going back into the federal government, um, to recoup some of the money that was given out, um, as stimulus packages during COVID and uh, well, primarily COVID and uh, to try to make sure that people were able to stay afloat and make sure in the PPP loans and all that. So businesses can stay open. Um, But as you heard from a guest on a previous show, an economist, government spending contributes to inflation and because you're putting more money into the system, which will generate, you know, higher prices, whatever, because basically businesses want to get a hold of that money that's out there. Uh, just bottom line. And since you don't regulate business to the point, and that's part of the issue with this legislation that I'm going to get to, you don't, you can't really legislate or you can try to, but it's been unsuccessful to control prices in a way where you don't dismantle the free market system, but you try to rein it in a little bit. Um, Yeah. People are, you know, everybody is a laissez-faire economist uh, or believes in that laissez-faire economic theory, especially if you're getting checks, political checks from people who want, to make as much money as they can, right? 
Um, so anyway, since the government put all this money out there, they're trying to recoup it. And in recouping that, trying to knock down deficits. Now, there's a whole bunch of other deficits out there for those folks who are like my friend Rick Roberts and other economists out there that can can take you all through the journey of all the factors that are kicking in for inflation. Um, you know, he talked about the war uh, in Ukraine and all that, but there's trade deficits. There's, um, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of other things that kick in that contribute to inflation as well, especially even stock speculation, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that kick in and really you would have to have, this show wouldn't do it justice to try to, the format of this show, you really have to have a, 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 a multi-day symposium to really break down all of the factors that are contributing to inflation and try to figure out some solutions to curb that, right? Um, which, you know, members of the United States Congress have days to work on stuff. And of course, this is what they came up with, right? So $300 billion is going toward paying down the debt that was created by, or the deficit that was created by the stimulus packages during COVID, all right? Then it's uh, it's going to lower energy costs and increases cleaner production and reduces carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. Um, so one of the things that they're going to look at um, in lowering the en energy cost is making sure that the permitting process is not as bureaucratic. Uh, the longer that it takes to get the permits to drill wells or to put up windmills or to create solar cell farms or whatever, uh, the more money it's going to cost that business because that business has to try to sustain long enough so it can make money. So the longer it takes to set up the business, the longer it's going to take to make money, which means more cost for that business. And there are some businesses that no matter how good their idea can't sustain a long bureaucratic process. So part of the legislation hopes to reduce that bureaucratic process in the permitting. Uh, although it's geared toward clean energy like wind and solar and, and, and hydro, um, it still will benefit fossil fuel uh, production um, because the United States is still the largest oil producer in the world as of now. And it's politically expedient and economically expedient for us to maintain that uh, distinction. So, you know, as we transition to a more cleaner energy source uh, or an energy practice, right? Which if you watch the oil companies, you know, now a lot of them are getting into 
cleaner energy while still making money off fossil fuels. And, um, and the electric companies for generations, that's why you have all these reservoirs and dams and all that. They've been doing the hydro for, and, and hydro is probably the oldest form of energy generation in this nation, right? Uh, as far as being controlled. So, you know, but companies are more and more of the big oil companies are phasing into that. And so as they phase in, the country is going to phase. You're seeing the cars being produced, electric cars, all that stuff. Basically, phasing means we got to figure out how we can maintain our status as a, as a global corporation, make our money and get into this business, right? And stay in the energy business. It's all phasing means. But nonetheless, um, they'll still benefit from legislation if it's easier to go through the process to drill for more oil, then that keeps costs down as far as current gas prices, current way we, we travel and everything else. All right. So then the other thing is it allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices and caps out-of-pocket costs to $2,000. It lowers ACA healthcare premiums for millions of Americans, right? So, and this is why I was saying this legislation kind of relates to the topic we're talking about, is that what what the Biden administration really wanted to do, and Raphael Warnock, yes, he's running for the United States Senate, but he's currently a U.S. Senator, and so if he's doing something that needs to be mentioned, then it's going to be mentioned. Uh, He has been on a crusade to lower insulin prices that he's kind of taken the lead in that there are a bunch of other senators especially democratic senators who feel his passion and and have signed on and and was working toward doing that but he was that was that was like the first thing he started jumping on when he got there was to deal with drug companies charging high prices for insulin, which when you look at it, especially an African-American U.S. senator is looking at the African-American community, which has in proportion to other ethnic groups, high rates of diabetes, which means that more African-Americans are going to be using insulin or a bigger percentage within their group as opposed to other groups. So that's a that's a concern. And if you know, if we talk about on the show about wealth disparity, for every hundred dollars a white family makes, a black family makes five. That white family probably can absorb that cost better than a black family if diabetes hits them. But you want it to be affordable for the white family and the black family and the Hispanic family, and the Asian family. You want it to be affordable for every American, male, female, don't matter, right? You want it to be affordable because this is something that is common, right? If if it's common for a lot of people who have heart conditions to be able to go to a drugstore, not even get a prescription, just go to a drugstore, get some St. Joseph's or Bears Children's Aspirin, take those doses on a daily basis, and 
keep their heart condition under control, right? They can afford to do that out of pocket. The majority of people, right? Um, but diabetes control, not so much. So they, they try to do certain things and there have been, as we talk about these drug commercials, there's been a, a move to try to have alternatives to insulin and, and basically trying to get people to monitor their blood sugar better so they won't have to depend on insulin so much, right? And if I'm wrong, the doctor will email me and, and, and correct me. But, um, you know, but it, it, there's, there's, there's alternatives. People are trying to, drug companies on medical companies are trying to create other alternatives, right? Because insulin cost is high. And so Senator Warnock and a bunch of other Democratic senators were pushing to put a cap on insulin across the board, right? Especially with private healthcare insurance. But if you've seen some ads, there's this guy named Joe who basically is he, he's a cancer patient, supposedly. I don't know if he's an actor portraying a cancer patient or he really is one. Either way, he is making the compelling case trying to say that, you know, don't mess with Medicare, don't, don't mess with this so I can still afford my drugs. What he is talking about is this legislation, which couldn't do it with the private insurance company, but is going to do it with Medicare. So what Medicare is going to be able to do is just like any other corporation in America, if IBM or Microsoft or, or Procter & Gamble or any one of these companies, you want to do insurance with them, you want to sell their employees health insurance, you got to negotiate with them because they have so many employees. And they're going to pay part of the cost to cover the insurance. So they sit down in a room and they decide, you know, well, a room is metaphoric, but they sit down and they negotiate how much they're going to pay this insurance company. If you want to do business with this company, you're going to have to charge this rate so that we can afford to pay part of it and our employees can contribute and everybody's covered. So with the power of the United States government now through Medicare, that's what they're trying to do. Now, it didn't say Medicaid, which would cover a bigger class, just Medicare, which is a huge class because we are living longer. But it's not Medicaid, which would be the biggest class, right? So with Medicare, they're going to be able to negotiate with drug companies how much you're going to charge for insulin, how much you're going to charge for hypertension medicine, how much you're going to charge for anxiety medicine, how much you're going to charge for shingles vaccines, all those things that would fall under Medicare, right? And that's parts A and B because C you know, you have to get additional and that's that that brings in the dental and division, right? Anyway, basically Medicare A and B, you're gonna they're gonna be able to negotiate the cost of um insulin and other drugs 
and basically say you can't charge more than $2,000 if you're, if you're going to do that, whatever the, the out of pocket expense for that individual can't be more than $2,000. So you're going to have to, they're, they, that's where the negotiation, but because of the big class, the millions of Americans that are on Medicare, that's a big deal because that makes Medicare kind of like the largest employer in the country. And if Walmart can negotiate prices for whatever benefits they give their folks, then Medicare should get the best prices, right? Just a thought. And of course, I, you know, Walmart doesn't really have universal health insurance like that, but that's a whole nother conversation of the day. Anyway, they're also going to put $64 billion in the Affordable Care Act extension. So that's where that's going to help mitigate any costs for those folks who don't qualify for Medicare, Medicaid, but don't have insurance with their job. Um, that's going to keep premiums at a certain level, or at least keep them from rising quickly. Um, this $64 billion infusion. So that's what that means. And then the biggest thing that um, the uh, Republicans or those people who are opposed to the legislation trying to tout is that this plan is going to cost about $739 billion to do what we're talking about. And the the Democrats or the proponents of the bill have basically said, this is how it's going to be paid. The biggest corporations and the ultra wealthy are going to pay their fair share. There's going to be no new taxes on families making less than, well, $400,000 or, or less, and no new taxes on small businesses. They're going to close some tax loopholes uh, and thoroughly enforce the tax code. I mean, you believe if you enforce the law, you give more money, which is why part of that deal, kind of the small print in the is that they're they're trying to put more money in the IRS so that they can go after uh, people who are sheltering their money uh, in in places like the Cayman Islands and other places. So you don't get a true sense of their true wealth, right? They don't, they don't have to pay taxes on the, all the interest and all that stuff because they're spreading their money out, their income out. So they don't have to pay a whole lot of taxes, but they get to keep the money, right? So, uh, they believe they're going to generate $313 billion by having a 15% minimum tax for corporations. Um, with the prescription drug pricing reform, they plan to save or generate about $288 billion. Uh, with the IRS, putting the money in there, they're talking about $124 billion to make sure that the IRS is back into the tax enforcement business and any carried interest loophole uh, that's out there. Um, 
they think that's going to generate about $14 billion. So they're, they're saying that those four things will pay for this legislation. And there were, there were some, there was some, they could have done more and they could have collected more money, but you know, you got my friend, Christian cinema <laughs> who wanted to make sure that people who are making money off hedge funds don't have to pay taxes or the same amount of taxes as anybody else. Right. Um, you know, and there was, like I said, and they wanted to protect the, uh, the cost of, you know, with the pharmaceutical companies, they wanted to make sure that, they didn't have to negotiate with the private insurance companies on price either. Uh, the same cap that they're putting on Medicare, they don't have to put it on, you know, the private insurance companies won't get that ability to do that because there were some senators that were sympathetic to the drug companies on that note. So everybody got a little something. Everybody didn't get what they wanted, which is basically how the legislative process works. Don't think it's a, a miracle is about to happen. Um, don't think that all of a sudden you're going to see a dramatic drop in prices on food items and, and, uh, gasoline right away once the president signs this. Uh, but just kind of watch the trends. The, the key thing to watch is that this people are getting jobs. There were 528,000 new jobs. Nobody saw that coming. I don't know why. Because I don't pretend to be an economics expert. But nobody saw that coming. So now it's a half a million new jobs that have been created and filled that nobody saw coming. So more people are making more money, which will kind of keep inflation going, right? Since there's no check on producers and sellers of goods to curb their prices, they see more money out there, they're going to go get it. Right. And they're going to charge what they want for the services that we desire and need. So they're going to try to get that money back because their argument is they're hiring these people. So we got to pay them. So we got to charge more money. And that's not really how it works, but that's how they tell it to people and majority of people buy into that. Right. But, you know, but but we are seeing gas prices going down and part of that swallowing that pride of Joe Biden to go deal with MBS in Saudi Arabia uh, was to get that commitment for them to put more oil in the market. Um, 
But then Nancy Pelosi then went over to Taiwan and, and pissed China off. So now, you know, that's how, you know, is China going to call in markers on trade deficits, right? Um, you know, we're not, we're not going to be going to war. Everybody saw the battleships circling Taiwan, all that, and the Taiwan, Taiwanese Air Force protecting the island nobody's going to be shooting for that's not going to happen this has been going on for a long time this is it hasn't been going on as long as arab is arabs and israelis right in the middle east those conflicts between judaism and islam but it's been going on for a long time longer than my lifetime and you know so that tension is going to ease, but what China can do is the money manipulation thing, is the trade deficit thing, you know, charging more for goods to be made there and shipped back to us, those kind of things. And then we can turn around and, you know, hit them with some trade stuff too. So that doesn't help the inflation. <laughs> that that's going to keep prices at a certain level. And you're always going to have some kind of inflation as, as noted, but you know, not, it shouldn't be nine, 10, 15%, right? Nonetheless, that's kind of where we are. Um, I, I, I wanted to take that time. I didn't want to get into winners and losers and, you know, because a lot of people are saying Biden's doing a victory lap and all that. I think it's more of a service for me to explain what this bill is that everybody thinks is going to save the Democrats in, in November. Um, and what that what that's going to mean to us. Right. So uh, hopefully in the time that I've been allotted, uh, I've been able to do that. Um, you can always reach out to me. Uh, outside of the podcast, um, you know, on on Twitter and and Instagram and everything else, just like everybody else, I have as guests. You can you can hit me up the same way. Uh, I definitely have a moment with Eric Fleming, uh, moment Eric on Twitter that you can hit, um, and I'm on LinkedIn too. So, um, but I just wanted to bring that out there to y'all, and hopefully. That helps. And I hope Dr. Morgan uh, was was informative as well. All right, guys, until next time.